Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 7, and also Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into a prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours uh, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. In verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Before I, uh, before we jump in, yeah, let me just say a few things about uh, about what today represents for us. Today is our two-year birthday, which is pretty uh, spectacular. Uh, two years ago, of course, we we started with the services that we're now in the middle of. Probably a year before that, that we kind of started some of the initial planning of what REH was going to be. Uh, there were dreams that my wife and I had probably a decade before about what REH was going to be. Um, Abe, I don't remember this, the first conversation we had uh, about it was around some discounted happy hour Cosmopolitans, I think. Uh, super random. They were the cheapest thing on the menu that day. Um, that was about four, four, almost five years ago now. It's really crazy. So anyway, there's been so much that's happened leading up to uh, to today and to the celebration. And you know, thinking about earlier, I um, was talking with someone just about that small group. For those of you that were with us, just a small group of people that were meeting over on 102nd every week, getting our uh, our, our our calf workout up that hill. Uh, if you remember and you were part of it, you know what I'm talking about. Such sweet, sweet times that we had there. Fast forward, the Lord has done so much. You know, of course, we we started four months before the pandemic hit, which that alone uh, was not in the plans. In a decade worth of praying and planning, a global pandemic was not something uh, that was on my radar, for sure. Uh, and yet, despite all of that, the Lord has been so faithful to us as a church. It's been pretty remarkable that in the midst of, frankly, I mean, one of the 
toughest seasons that many of us have ever had to live through. In the midst of that, the Lord grew us, the Lord sustained us, the Lord raised up uh, leaders, uh, the Lord has given us just mind-blowing opportunities to serve our community. I mean, like, things that, again, for those of you that were with us in the very beginning, during those that slow small group times and then soon after, the kinds of things that we dreamed about then, that we thought the Lord would do one day, uh, he's given us opportunities to do even now. I mean, we think about the, the dozen or so ministry partners that we're getting to work with right now in particular. That, that's the one thing that like really energizes me. Um, most across all the things that we're doing, but working with youth and being able to work with young moms and those that are in the midst of unplanned pregnancy and serving our immigrant neighbors. I mean, all of these things are things that we're able to do more and more because uh, the Lord has been faithful and because not only you know, in relation to his faithfulness, it's also your presence. Uh, your presence as part of our church um, is what makes everything possible, the work that we're doing possible. So we thank the Lord faithfulness we thank you uh, for your commitment and for your faithfulness and my goodness yes angela and i have done a lot of work but none of it in the end uh matters if the lord isn't blessing it and if his people aren't uh believing in it and so we're very grateful for both of those things and so thank you and yes let's hang out for a little while there will be cupcakes uh and then um just some good time together to celebrate the day so grateful for all of you okay Sermon now. Got to shift my brain into this. Let's start here. One of the finest movies ever created. The 1980s movie, The Karate Kid. The main character, Daniel LaRusso. He is with his teacher, Mr. Miyagi. Uh, and they go to the feared Cobra Kai dojo. And as they walk in to this dojo, John Kreese, who is the sensei of this dojo, uh, leader of the Cobra Kai, he says this to his students, if you remember. He says, we do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here, in the streets, and in competition, a man confronts you, he is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. Now, of course, in the movie, the methods of the Cobra Kai are juxtaposed with the methods of Mr. Miyagi, who has a much more balanced, mindful view of what it means to engage one's enemy. But John Kreese and the Cobra Kai, they actually do tap into something that's fairly primitive and inherent to us. And that is the concept that right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust, that these things really are about getting what you deserve. Right? The, the survival uh, of the fittest is the idea that if you are the strongest, you will dominate. Survival and success are often, it's, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Kill or be killed. It's the concept of karma, that the idea that there is this energy or this force that's created as a result of your conduct that dictates what you experience in life now and also maybe the lives that are to come. It's you get what you deserve. It's the basis for Western culture and our ideas and uh, conceptions of a meritocracy where you earn what you, uh, what you achieve. You reap what it is that you sow. If you are a good person with a good work ethic and you, uh, you, you work hard with good morals, you will succeed. But if you don't succeed, it's because of your own choices. Your misery is your misery because you have not done enough to achieve success. All of these ideas are rooted in the simple conviction that you get what you deserve. 
But then you have Jesus come. And he doesn't say that you are to defeat those who confront you. He doesn't give everyone what it is that they deserve. It's not about what you have earned. Instead, Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, John Kreese and karma and Western assumptions of a meritocracy have no idea what to do with that kind of a statement. Blessed are the merciful, and yet Jesus is here talking about his kingdom and describing the ways that his people are to, just to reflect that kingdom by saying, be merciful. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in a series called Thy Kingdom Come, looking at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a reflection and a, a, describing the character of his kingdom. And this week, we come to this particularly jarring characteristic of the kingdom of God, which is mercy. I mean, what does Jesus have in mind when he says mercy? And what does it mean for us to be a people of mercy? Let's understand that today by not only looking at Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, but also taking a look at a lesson that we can learn from Matthew 18 in the parable of the unfaithful servant. And to do that, let's consider it in this way. Let's consider what Jesus has to say about mercy and forgiveness, about mercy and grace, and then mercy and judgment. Okay? Let's look at those three things. First, let's consider what Jesus has to say about mercy and forgiveness. To begin, we need to understand the context of the parable that we just heard read to us. The context of the parable is that just before uh, Jesus tells this parable, he's teaching on reconciliation and forgiveness. And coming out of that teaching, what we have in our passage is the Apostle Paul, in verse 21, asks the question, Lord... How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, what I find interesting about that question, right? Given, so Jesus is talking about reconciliation, he's talking about forgiveness, and this was the first thing that Paul asks. How many times do I have to forgive? This is 100% my own conjecture. But when I hear Peter ask that question, it actually reminds me a lot of a question that was asked, uh, asked back in Luke 10. In that passage, uh, if you know the story, there was an expert of the law, and it says that he was seeking to justify himself when Jesus called them to love their neighbor. And as a way of trying to justify himself, the expert of the law says, well, who exactly is my neighbor, Jesus? The implication being, who is it that I, I should love and care for? And Jesus' response to the question from the expert of the law is to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now that parable, I won't go into the parable, but that parable would have been a highly controversial parable to the expert of the law because, see, what had happened was that the expert had come asking Jesus this question, thinking that he'd be able to justify himself because Jesus would have likely, as in his mind, would have said, well, your neighbor is your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And so for the expert of the law, that would have been easy. He's like, well, yes, if that's who my neighbor is, then I have obeyed that law because I, have, I can love my neighbor as well. However, that's not what Jesus tells us in the story. If you remember, Jesus' story, the parable, is about our neighbor being those, anybody that we come across in need, even those who would have been deemed an enemy. And this completely upends the expert of the law's understanding of who it is that he is to love. Now, okay, back to our passage. This question from Peter 
though again, not 100% uh, explicit in this passage, kind of gives me the same vibes. I mean, after Jesus taught on forgiveness, the very first thing Peter asks is, well, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Like, seven times? Now, I wouldn't be uh, surprised that if, if at some point Peter had forgiven someone seven times and thought he was killing it on the forgiveness thing. And so he thought he'd throw it out there, test the waters with Jesus and see if seven times was good enough. But of course, Jesus pushes the conceptions of what we deem to be necessary or appropriate in forgiveness. And he says, no, try 70 times seven. Now, is Jesus being literal there and that we ought to forgive 490 times? Which I think is right. I did that in my head really quick earlier, but I'm really bad at math. I think that's right. 490. Is that literally what Jesus is saying? No. Instead, what he's driving home, the point is, is that forgiveness often requires far more than we assume it does. Now, what does that have to do with mercy? I mean, all of this was about mercy. Well, Jesus understands mercy and forgiveness to be deeply tied together because this is in response to Peter's question. He tells the story of the unmerciful servant. So Peter's asking a question about forgiveness. Jesus tells a story about mercy. And in that story, there are a couple of servants that we see. One in particular who owes his master an unpayable debt, if you remember what we just heard. It was so large that there would have been no way for him to actually pay it off. He was about to lose everything as a result of this debt. And so he goes to his master asking for mercy. And he says to his master, master, be patient with me and I will pay you back everything. Now, I don't know if any of you have felt that kind of feeling, but that feeling where you're on the verge of losing everything and you go to the one who holds all the power over you, right? That desperation has to be immense. But in the midst of that desperation, imagine experiencing the joy of verse 27. When this servant who owes this unpayable debt hears his master say that he would take pity on him, that he would actually cancel the debt and let him go. I mean, some of you can imagine the power of that feeling because maybe you've actually experienced a massive debt that you could not pay, being, you being released from it. But imagine the immediate burden lifted when you realize that your greatest debts are wiped clean. What a sense of freedom this servant ought to have had. But the story goes on to tell us that that same servant who had been, uh, who owed much but had been forgiven, he was also one who had servants under him. He had a servant that owed him a great debt as well. And when that servant, servant came to him looking for mercy, the servant that had been previously forgiven, he did not give mercy or forgiveness, but rather he gives wrath. And he throws this servant who couldn't pay into prison. Now I find that verse 30, uh, there are many issues and the, the, with this servant, but verse 30 I find particularly harsh. Right? He throws the man who owes him a debt, he throws him into prison until he can pay the debt back, which means that the man who needs to work to pay off the debt can't do so. 
And so now he's a bee in a cycle of being not only in poverty, but now imprisoned as a result of this debt. But when that word of that interaction comes back to the master, what happens? I mean, the master is furious. So much so that he throws the once forgiven servants into jail. And in doing so, the, the master asks this probing question that should sit with us for the rest of today. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? I find it striking that Jesus connects Peter's question about forgiveness with these ideas of mercy. Because I do wonder how often we bring these two ideas together. Because I think the reason Jesus ties mercy and forgiveness together is because they both require the same posture. Both mercy and forgiveness require a posture of sacrifice. And here's what I mean by that. Every time mercy or forgiveness is given, someone always takes on the burden of the debt. Always. I mean, think about the, the forgiveness of a debt. If you are forgiven of a huge financial debt, the debt, that money, doesn't just disappear. Rather, the one who was owed money decides to eat the cost of that debt so that you can be free from the burden. Right? The burden falls on the creditor. Or, or think about other ways that we think about forgiveness. Think about forgiveness in the context of relationships. If a spouse or a parent, or a friend, or a coworker betrays you, lies to you, hurts you, forgiveness will be costly to you. Why? Because your extending of forgiveness or mercy might make them feel better. It might alleviate the burden for them of how they failed you. But who takes on that burden? You do. Right? Their failure and your mercy become your burden to bear. And from a worldly perspective, this kind of posture of sacrifice in this way, taking on the burden of someone else, runs completely counter to our logic. It runs completely counter to the ideas of John Kreese and meritocracy and karma, these other ways that we tend to think about people getting what they deserve. It runs counter to it. People should get what they deserve. Mercy is for the weak. Your bad deeds are your bad deeds. Your failure is your failure. Why should I take out the burden of what you did wrong? But again, Jesus comes along. He says, no, I expect something different from my people. But this is not the only complexity to the concept of mercy that we see here. We also need to consider, not only does Jesus tie mercy and forgiveness together, so pin this for a second, but in the rest of the New Testament, there's other ways that mercy is understood. Mercy is often attached to another concept, and that would be the concept of grace. In fact, understanding the nuance of those two concepts helps us all the more to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in Matthew 5. So let's consider that quickly. Not only mercy and forgiveness, but also mercy and grace. Uh, there's a fairly easy way to make a distinction between mercy and grace, and that would simply be this. That grace is being given what you don't deserve, while mercy is not being given what you do deserve. Right, let me say that again. 
Grace is being given what you don't deserve. Mercy is not being given what you do deserve. Give me maybe an example of that. Do you remember uh, the story of Little Orphan Annie? I hope maybe some of us do. Do they still make you read that, I don't know, in school? Well, if you don't know the story, Little Orphan Annie, she was a young girl in deep poverty living in an orphanage with, this, with an abusive woman. But through a series of events, which I'm going to skip over, she's adopted by the billionaire, Mr. Warbucks. And what's amazing about this adoption is that you have this girl living in deep poverty who's adopted, and as a result, she instantly becomes a billionaire by virtue of the new position that she has just been gifted as the daughter of Mr. Warbucks. Grace is essentially becoming a billionaire. Even though she really did nothing to deserve that status, it is rightfully hers nonetheless. So being given something you don't deserve or haven't earned, that's grace. That, however, is different than mercy. Right? So if grace is being given billions, mercy is owing billions in debt, and as a result being sent to jail, facing jail time as a result of owing those billions, but instead of getting what you deserve by having this debt, you're released from that debt and set free. That's mercy. One uh, biblical commentator put it this way, that mercy always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. Grace, however, always deals with the sin and the guilt itself. One extends relief, the other pardon. The one cures, heals, helps, the other cleanses and reinstates. Why does this matter? What does this have to do with everything we're talking about today? It's because grace isn't always something that we can extend. Grace requires certain kinds of resources or status or power to be able to change someone's uh, position. But mercy, I think, is something daily we can extend. There are daily opportunities for us to extend forgiveness and compassion and to be moved by the pain and the misery and the distress of others. You know, I might not be able to graciously change the status of the poor, but I can be merciful to the poor by seeking to extend relief. I might not be able to change someone's station in life like Mr. Warbucks with Annie, but I can attempt to relieve the burden they experience while in that station. I might not be able to remove all the guilt of those who have hurt me, but I can keep from seeking vengeance that gives them what they might actually deserve. This is the kinds of rhythms of mercy that we can find ourselves in regularly, and this is the kind of thing Jesus is calling us to be. For those who are his people who desire to reflect his kingdom, this is mercy. Now I also want to just pause for a second and say that there have also been perversions of people's understanding of mercy. Because there is a way in which one might take mercy and actually use the concept of mercy as a justification for some kind of injustice. Meaning, there are some, some of you here even, who have been sinned against terribly. And the notion that the perpetrator of that sin, whoever has sinned against you, should not get what they deserve seems incredibly unjust. And I want you to know you're right. 
You're right. It is incredibly unjust for those that have uh, been perpetrators to not get what they deserve in regards to justice. Biblical mercy, though, is not a rationale for ignoring injustice and sinfulness and wrongdoing. There is a difference. And the difference is pretty simple to understand, so I'm going to give it to you now. But I also recognize it's incredibly hard to accomplish. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a well-known pastor, wrestling through this distinction. I wanna, if you guys want to maybe throw that, um, throw that up, I want to read this to you. It's a little bit of an extended quote, but it was too good. I thought I'd give it to you completely. This is what he says about that idea. He says, to have a merciful spirit means that the spirit that is displayed when you suddenly find yourself in the position of having your power, uh, I'm sorry, having in your power someone who has transgressed against you. Now, the only way to know whether you are merciful or not is to consider how you feel towards that person. Are you going to say, well now, I am going to exert my rights at this point. I am going to be legal. This person has transgressed against me very well. Here comes my opportunity. That is the antithesis of being merciful. This person is in your power. Is there a vindictive spirit? Or is there a spirit of pity and sorrow? A spirit, if you like, of kindness to your enemies in distress. Or again, can, you, can we describe it as in words of sympathy and outward acts in relation to the sorrows and sufferings of others? There's a few things I want to note in that articulation. First, he points out that mercy requires some position of power over someone else. Right? Jesus' parable does the same. We cannot show mercy to someone until we are put in a position of power over them. So when injustice is taking place, it's important to note that the victim of that injustice has no power. And so mercy is not a justification for injustice or sin to continue, but rather it shows the extent to which justice must be pursued when victimization actually does occur. But the second thing that I want to point out there is when the tables have turned and the once powerless hold the power, our posture toward the perpetrator is the determining factor in our willingness to be merciful. When someone sins against us, the real line between mercy and wrongfully seeking vengeance is the simple question that he just noted. Is there a spirit of pity and sorrow, a spirit, if you like, of kindness to your enemies in distress? Does your heart break for the perpetrator of injustice and sin, knowing that at some point they will suffer as a result of their sin. Does that compassion well up in you? If so, that's mercy. And the bottom line is that mercy is being moved with that compassion and for compassion to lead us to deal gently and proportionally toward others who might very well deserve to feel the full vengeance of your wrath. Now, Nothing about what I just said comes naturally to us. John Kreese, karma, and meritocracy come naturally to us. You get what you deserve. And I know some of the stories of those of you listening to me right now. 
I know in my own experiences that there are some horrendous injustices and sins that have been, have been befalling you. And the idea of extending mercy and forgiveness to those who have hurt you, it seems impossible to be able to do. And maybe some of you here, you are actually the perpetrator. You can think of times when you have sinned horribly against someone else and the idea of you receiving mercy feels impossible. Because you're feeling the impact of your own sin or your own injustice. And together, we very might well think there's no way. There's no way that this could actually functionally, practically happen. It feels impossible. And you know what? I think you're right. This kind of posture really is impossible for us when we consider it from the natural ways that we approach these kinds of things. But this beatitude that Jesus calls us to is not just a command to be merciful. Because what Jesus also presents to us is not just a command about mercy, but he also shows us and points the way to which the impossible actually becomes possible. I want you to know, and we're going to see in a moment, that mercy, true mercy, the way that Jesus describes, is an actual miracle. Like a literal miracle. That it's, that's something that cannot happen except for the intervention of God. And so what I want to do, I want to show you how exactly it is a miracle by considering, finally, not just mercy and forgiveness, not just mercy and grace, but also mercy and judgment. I promise that will make sense. Look at the second half of uh, 5 verse 7 of the Beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they will be shown mercy. Let me pause there just for a moment. According to Jesus, mercy is something that we all need. All right, so don't escape the fact that these Beatitudes are not these pithy statements that apply to only a select group of people. Rather, these are statements for everyone, including us. So don't miss first that in some way we are under some kind of judgment and we require mercy. Okay, so that's number one. But also look at the, the last part of the parable. There is a, a horrifying and rather disturbing statement that's made. Jesus says about the, uh, the unforgiving, forgiven servants, right? So the one who was uh, uh, forgiven but now is in some ways unforgiven. Verse 32, he says, you wicked servants, I canceled all the debts of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he, paid, until he should pay back all he owed. And then in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That is a jarring statement. What exactly are we to do with that statement? First thing to consider there is what are we supposed to do with the, with the judgment language? And second, it seems like Jesus is saying that the forgiveness that you'll experience is proportional to the forgiveness that you give. And that to me sounds a lot like karma and the meritocracy. If you're, for, if you're merciful, then you will experience mercy. You get what you deserve. That's what it initially sounds like. But though it sounds like in some way salvation is in 
our hands and our ability to be worthy of the forgiveness that we might get from God, if that's what Jesus is actually saying here, then we can throw out all, Christ, all Christian theology on salvation and justification and sanctification and glorification, all of it. If Jesus is saying that you can earn your salvation and forgiveness, then you don't have a Christian gospel. So what exactly is he talking about here? Well, consider what we've said so far. We said that mercy is forgiveness that takes the burden off those who are suffering under the weight of their debt. We said that mercy is not being given what you deserve, when what we deserve is judgment. This has been and remains one of the most controversial doctrines of Christianity. The idea that we are all actually under debt, that we are all actually guilty of sin and injustice and rebellion before God. You don't understand Christianity, you can't understand the gospel unless you start there. That we are all the perpetrators. We are all those who owe a debt. That we are all the unforgiving servants by nature because we naturally believe that you get what you deserve. This is why Jesus' words seem so harsh. Because of the gravity of our circumstance before a holy God. We are in a severe position of being the ones with an unpayable debt. The perpetrators of sin and injustice. And that leaves us feeling very disorienting, know, knowing how we would respond to others if we were in God's position. Because we know that we could never extend the kind of mercy that we're seeing described here. But hear me, God is merciful in ways that we never could be. We said that mercy moves us with compassion for those who are suffering under the weight of sin in this sin-filled world where God in his mercy is moved with compassion for us in our sin-filled state. And as a result, he sends his son, Jesus Christ. We said that mercy is forgiveness and that forgiveness always requires someone to take the burden and the consequence of failure and sin, to take the debt upon themselves. And Jesus Christ, on the cross, takes upon himself the torture of death, the debt of our sin. He takes our judgment and gives us mercy. Unless we assume that God is unjust for not punishing the perpetrators of sin and injustice, just know that that is completely wrong. Because all sin, all injustice will be punished, either on the cross or on the day of judgment. All of it will be. And so with all of that in mind, unlike the servant of the parable, those who understand the extent to which they have been forgiven and shown mercy will then be able to extend that same, same kind of forgiveness and mercy to others. And those who are unmerciful, uncompassionate, harsh, and unforgiving are those who implicitly, if not explicitly, believe that they are not in need of forgiveness and mercy themselves. And so my encouragement to you would be this. This kind of mercy is impossible. It really is ultimately going to be impossible for us to extend unless we first see the extent to which we have received mercy and forgiveness from God. And the more and more we understand the depths of his mercy, the more and more we will be people 
who are able to reflect the character of the kingdom of Jesus in the ways that we extend mercy to others. The last thing I'll say is this. You know, I, I drew out that mercy and grace idea because not only does God give us mercy, which he does, he does not give us what we deserve, but remember what we said about grace? That he also gives us that which we ultimately haven't earned or deserved. So not only are we forgiven, but in a lot of ways we become little orphan Annie, brought into the billionaire's home of Mr. Warbucks, and we are lavished upon. The riches of heaven become ours as a consequence of our right relationship now being restored in Jesus. We now become children of God. So not only do we receive mercy, we've also received grace. And how much more then should we be a people that are able to, as a result, extend mercy, forgiveness, and grace? May God make it so in us that a world that is totally set up for the John Creases of the world, totally set up for the karma and the meritocracy, may they see something different in the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for kindness, for compassion, for mercy, forgiveness and grace. God, we recognize that we often fail to extend that kind of love and compassion to others. Lord, too often we are a people who desire vengeance, people who desire to give others what they deserve. But God, I pray that you would remind us of what it is that you have done in Jesus, which is to give us a mercy that, be, that is beyond our comprehension, that though we were under a great debt that we could not pay, in your kindness, you have taken care of that debt for us in Jesus, so that now we become children of God, lavished upon great riches beyond our comprehension. Lord, if we cannot show mercy and grace to others, forgiveness to others, I question whether or not we've fully experienced the fullness of your mercy and forgiveness toward us. And so God, with your spirit, fix our eyes on Jesus and the work he has done on our behalf. And may that mold us and shape us in profound ways. Forgive us for the ways that we have not reflected your kingdom. But by your spirit, empower us to be a people who show the world something different. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.